Hi, my name is Saul, and this is the story of London. I've called this podcast The Story of London, as I want to tell the history of the city, but my desire is to do it like a narrative, telling the tale of the city in chapters, each one taking us a little bit further along in the chronicle of the place that even today is one of the great metropolises of Earth. London has experienced perpetual change during its time. It's seen countless riots and civic violence fill its streets with blood and fury. It has been destroyed by fire, disease, overlord and war. It has been a fortress, a bastion, which has at times resisted armies of all sizes and shapes. It has been a city of religious fervour where men and women have been burned alive screaming for mercy from their god. It has been a place of merchants and of traders, of making fortunes and of robbing people blind. A city of priests, a city of thieves, a city of the rich and a city of the poor, filled with kings and queens and beggars and conmen. It has risen and it has fallen, and it has seen the passing of many ages, and yet it has endured. London endures, and its many streets have witnessed all these things over the passing centuries. And so, this is merely me trying to tell that tale in a way that is both entertaining and also informative. Now, because I'm telling a story, I must make a confession right off the bat. Often, because of the nature of history itself, I'll be forced to simplify events. And because it's a story, some chapters will cover thousands of years in one episode, like this one does. And others will focus on a single year, especially when things get really exciting. And things will get really exciting. So let us begin. And to begin, we need to set the stage, to commence a prologue, an introduction to the space where our central character, London itself, will soon make its opening appearance. So what follows is a brief guide to the region before the Romans came, the prehistory of the place that was to become one of the mightiest cities on earth. The story of London begins then with chapter one. London before London. There have been people living in the region we today call London for about as long as there have been people living on the British Isles. It was originally inhabited by groups of the earliest hunter-gatherers, but we have no way of knowing anything about these most ancient of ancestors. We figure they shared the environment with the great megafauna of the world back then, species of giant hippopotamus, of rhinoceros and of mammoths and more. We know this, if we have found the remains of these creatures below the earth of the city today. Time passes, the centuries slip by and blur, and seemingly merge into one. The ice ages end and the climate changes. The land itself became an island, mostly filled with birch and pine forest, 
and our Stone Age ancestors filled the area also. Like their forebears, we know little if anything about them. We find their remains like footprints on a beach with the tides coming in, brief ephemeral traces, fragile ghosts of them and their lives. We find the bones of the deer and wild horses they would hunt and kill, and the handles of the axes they used to butcher those creatures, all scattered amidst the detritus of places where today stands the Old Kent Road. This region was a land rich in rivers. Here you would find the Tyburn, the Lee, the Fleet, the Walbrook. There was the River Westbourne and Neckinger, the Ephra and the Falconbrook, and more. And each one of these rivers was filled with life and potentially very good fishing. Around these, marshlands spread as far as the eye could see, the home of eels and of waterfowl of all sizes and shapes. And at the centre of it, was the mighty river all these lesser streams poured into, the Thames itself, powerful and strong, a tidal river forever linked to the sea beyond its twisting watercourses of great force and hidden danger. This region made for easy hunting and lazy fishing. This was a place that could support communities. And we assume that the Stone Age inhabitants built shelters, basic wooden structures, to protect themselves from the elements, from the cold and the rain. Of course, with the passing of the many, many centuries between now and then, no trace of these shelters remain except on a few isolated finds. On the banks of that great river, down on the shore by what we today call Vauxhall, we have found the broken wooden shards of what could have been the oldest of all buildings in London. Some six and a half thousand years ago, or thereabouts, a building was constructed here beside the water, its purpose unknown. Its remains now only glimpsed when the tide runs especially low. This is all we have of them, these ancient people. But this wilderness, this land of marsh and river, of forest and hill, that was their home as much as the neon-lit streets that stand upon their remains are home to us now. A thousand years would seemingly pass before we find our next true remains of our Neolithic residents. Again, these remains are found by the river down in Vauxhall. That part of the river seems to have been long favoured by the ancient dwellers of the region. Maybe it was. Or maybe the wet bank of the river has just preserved these remains better than elsewhere. Of course, there are reasons why that particular stretch of the river would have been favoured by the early settlers. See, here the river was slightly slower moving and would constrict into channels as it can still do upstream. And around this particular part of the river, the Thames was joined by a small legion of other rivers. The Ephra flowed in from the high ground of the south, a region we today call Brixton, while on the north bank, the rivers Tyburn and Mafelti also joined the river. The Tyburn itself split into two around a rough lump of land it found in its way, forming a natural island on the north bank, which would in time be covered in thorns and brambles. Some have said that the currents and eddies caused by the confluence of all these rivers may well have formed a gravel island in the middle of the Thames. 
and this is where those secondary Stone Age remains found in Vauxhall stand out, because it appears that around three and a half thousand years ago, someone built a wooden structure that could have been a bridge from the shore to possibly just such a temporary island. This is because the remains of the structure suggest that it was at least a jetty, or maybe the remains of some very primitive bridge. Could there have been an island temporarily made by debris and held together by plant life there in the middle of the Thames? Could these wooden remains have been the start of a bridge to it and then upon it another bridge that would take people to the other side? Is this why ancient antiquarians long maintained that this part of the river was the easiest to cross? Or does the discovery of the remains of two spears symbolically plunged into the ground near those wooden supports suggest that this was a religious site? The jetty led to a sacred space? Or was it just a fishing jetty and its purpose functionary and driven by the need for food? We will never know for sure. But there was one other location found that links to the people of the Neolithic Age, but we'll come back to that. We need move on. We do know that, after allowing time zoom forward hundreds, if not thousands of years, we arrive at the Bronze Age, and structures of greater complexity begin appearing. We know to the north of the River Thames a Bronze Age settlement was created inside a large square enclosure, in 2019, a massive hoard of items were found in this location, arguably the largest discovery of Bronze Age bronze items ever found in Britain. It was a mixture of broken weapon heads and odds and sods in a collection buried in four locations, each near each other. And this lends credence to the idea that these were probably items about to be melted down and recast as newer items, which also then supports the idea that this was a metalworking establishment of some type. We also know that the more sophisticated Bronze Age society that existed on this island manifested this sophistication and growing complexity in the construction of barrows, great burial mounds. We know the high ground to the south of London was used for locating these things, sort of an open-air cemetery. Indeed, you can find two of these ancient barrows still around and in place today. One is hidden behind railings amidst an ocean of suburban houses in Shooter's Hill, and the other appears as a small green lump in an otherwise flat open park in Plumstead. We move on to the Iron Age, which is a name we give to an era of unprecedented violence and social turmoil, it seems. The inhabitants of Britain seem to have taken to living in great hill forts, designed to protect animals and themselves from raiders. London and the surrounding region has a few of these places, uh, the best are to be found over in Epping Forest, but there is one closer to home. If you join a golf club who own the land just south of Wimbledon Common, you can get access to a hill fort, mistakenly called Caesar's Camp. This massive site, 300 metres in diameter, dates from around the 3rd century BCE. It was encircled by a ditch and a raised bank and thrived in the era before the coming of Rome. And yet everywhere and everything I have just mentioned so far are merely the remains of this ancient past 
like broken pieces of pottery, small shards of a once larger whole, and unfortunately, these are all that exists after the impact of the city that is to come. See, the Romans didn't just create a settlement here. They created a settlement that would, in time, erase almost all traces of what went before. Almost, but not quite. We must, at this point, I feel, pay very special attention, then, onto the site that was to be chosen by the Romans to build their settlement. And quickly, it becomes obvious that, geographically speaking, the area that was to become the City of London stands out almost immediately. You see, if you were to travel along the River Thames back in those Neolithic days, following its twists and turns, you could not have helped but notice how flat the North Bank was. If you sailed from what is today called Canary Wharf to what is today called Hampton Court Palace, you would have travelled a 35-mile-long stretch of the river where the only high ground was to be found in just one place. Only one place with hills over 20 metres high, if you don't include somewhere off in the distance where we call Chelsea today. That place was special. Picture then, as you turn your gaze north, as you drift downriver lazily on a Neolithic tide, the first thing you'll see is the smallest of the hills, what we today call Tower Hill. But just behind that are two larger companions. Looking north, the one on the right we know today as Cornhill, while next to it, its companion, a hill we call Ludgate Hill today. And between them flowed a river, the Walbrook, which rose in the area we call Hoxton today. The Walbrook Valley was well watered, if not slightly marshy, but those hills on either side were high and dry and ideal to build a settlement on. And to cap it all off, you can see that this Walbrook Valley was framed by another river, the Fleet, giving the whole region a natural feel as an ideal single location. And what's more, if you look behind you at that moment, you would see a series of islands on the south bank, raised areas in the river directly opposite, which makes the crossing much narrower here. It was in all ways an ideal place to put a community. Indeed, it is such an ideal place, we have to wonder if the claim that the Romans were the first to settle it could possibly hold any water. And it turns out there may have been a settlement here before. Only two years ago, a discovery was made that suggests that these hills were settled, not by people looking to build homes, but as a place of religious importance of some kind. I mean, we will never know for sure, as the people who did this establishing, they lived almost 6,000 years ago predating almost everything I've mentioned so far. Now, the evidence for this was found when workers were beginning construction on the new British headquarters of Amazon. As they dug deep into the earth of what is today called Shoreditch, they discovered a large dump of early Neolithic pottery, 436 fragments in total. And archaeologists worked out that these came from between 25 or 35 separate pots Later analysis at the University of Bristol then established that there were two basic types of pots that were being dumped 
together. It appears that some of the pots were used for the processing of milk, uh, probably in order to make cheese or butter. Although, if we're very lucky, they could have been making something like kefir, the alcoholic yogurt-type drink found in Central Asia. And the other type of pots were used for making a stew in them, probably beef or ground horse meat. And the shards were found in such a way that suggests they were the very beginning of a large Neolithic rubbish dump. Evidence suggests that this dump was much deeper and much, much bigger, but from the Roman period onwards, this region has been lived in and built over so many times that these last few shards are all that remains, literally the bottom of the rubbish tip. The thing is, we have found Neolithic rubbish dumps like this before across Britain, which were also filled with the broken remains of pottery. These places were frequently associated with ritual sites for religious ceremonies, most of which involved large-scale feastings, and most of which included pits where ceremonial tributes and remains of the feast were given, like bones and broken shards of pottery. Was the site on Cornhill, then, a place of ritualistic feasting by our Stone Age ancestors? We don't know. We really do not know. But over the last 20 years, around Cornhill and over on Ludgate Hill and down by the Thames foreshore, we've found Neolithic remains that seem to suggest it was. That the Walbrook Valley was seen in these earliest days as a sacred site used by the ancient ancestors of Londoners to come together, to celebrate, to feast and to find commonality with one another. There is also indeed circumstantial evidence to suggest that the Walbrook Valley could well have been a candidate for the location of a substantial Neolithic holy site. You see, there exists a very specific type of Neolithic complex, something called a caused way enclosure, usually built upon hilltops. And these are linked to Neolithic ritual locations. Now, the nearest one of those to the hills of central London is 20 miles away to the east in Essex at a place called Orset. But if you go west of Cornhill and Ludgate Hill for about 25 miles, you find another, roughly in this area where Windsor stands today. And for some, this suggests that for those Neolithic inhabitants, the twin hills of the Walbrook Valley would have been one of the few suitable locations to build one. And that what we see in Shoreditch is all that remains of what would have been a hilltop enclosure of sacredity, never lived in, but used as a place of communal worship and feasting by the Neolithic residents of the river and the marshland all around it. Such tantalising hints of our most ancient past remain, I am afraid, the realm of speculation because between then and now a vast conurbation has been born and it has, alas, obliterated much. Still, there always remains the tantalising possibility then of future discoveries. With every new construction within London there comes the sanguine belief that we could find some other shard of the past and with it more clues as to the people who lived in the time before. But enough. This is the story of a place and not its surrounding geography, or of the nameless forebears of the people who lived before the place was even born. But if I can offer one more very strong clue, 
as to there being people living in this region, long before the coming of the sandal-clad feet of Roman legionnaires, it lies in its very name itself. Because London is not a Roman name, Londinium has no root word in Latin. Supposedly, the origin comes from some mythic creation, an imaginary figure called King Lud, but amidst heated debates by learned language scholars and historians whose skills far surpass my own, there is an argument that the origin lies in an ancient word from the Celtic era, and that its original name could have meant the marshlands, or the place that floods. <laughs> that would fit, to be sure. And certainly... I find it somewhat fitting that those ancient and lost residents who inhabited this region and who may have made the Walbrook Valley a sacred site, that their main, if not only, contribution to the story of London could be the most important thing of all. They gave it its name. And that's it. The end of part one. Thank you for listening. Coming up, chapter two in the story of London, the birth, life and multiple deaths of Londinium. Mm-hmm.